Welcome to the Revenue Lounge, a podcast for revenue operations professionals who want to understand the various facets of this important go-to-market function. In each episode, the team at Nectar interviews revenue warriors on how they are reimagining revenue operations in creative and disruptive ways and what are their secrets to building a scalable and predictable revenue engine. Let's get started. What's one common theme running across high-performing organizations? They have a vision and everyone is aligned and committed to making it a reality. However, most organizations lack uniform standards for strategy and planning excellence that can help them create this vision. How can RevOps leaders achieve that? This is what we're going to cover in today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Revenue Lounge podcast. I am your host, Randy Likas. And today we have Dana Terrian joining us. Dana is the Vice President of Sales Performance Management and Revenue Operations Advisory Practice at Anaplan. Dana is a globally recognized sales and revenue operations leader with a history of driving double-digit growth and profitability. Hi, Dana. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Randy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Looking forward to the discussion. So let's start off with an easy one here. Tell me a little bit about your role and what you're up to over at Anaplan. So at Anaplan, I'm their sales performance management expert. I've spent most of my career leading sales operations and revenue operations organizations. I was fortunate enough to parlay that into a position at Serious Decisions later at Forrester, where I led their research and advisory practice, where I helped other companies understand some best practices around sales strategy, planning, forecasting, Uh, sales operations at that time. I had a vendor practice as well. So I got to know many of the different vendors that are in this space. And when I was exiting Forrester, I had an opportunity to go join many of these different companies, these vendors that I had advised. And I came to Anaplan because I saw so much redundancy between the different sales performance management vendors where they were paying multiple times or their customers were paying multiple times for the same capability. So if you had a forecasting solution and an enablement solution and a CPQ solution and a planning solution, ICM, you name it, they had similarities between them and they had overlap around artificial intelligence and process. And Anaplan was different because it's a platform. And I, I just saw the ability to eliminate a lot of these different redundancies for customers and to leverage all the information off that single platform. So they asked me to join as the representative of the sales ops and revenue operations community, help with their product uh, development, help with their marketing messages. And now I work in the sales organization supporting a lot of the largest uh, accounts and prospects. So just think of me as a sales ops person they keep in captivity and study so that they can improve their product. That's a really an interesting background to have come up for revenue operations and now be part of the, the sales team. We speak at Nectar with quite a few RevOps leaders. And what's interesting is you ask, what is RevOps to one person? You're going to get one definition. You ask a different person, you're going to get a different one. So we'd love to understand, given your history in the space, how would you define revenue operations? Well, getting into serious decisions back in 2015 when I did it, it was a difficult process where you had to write a research paper and you also had to present to their executives. They, they gave you a topic. They gave you seven days to do it. You had to do all the writing. They had to do the presentation. And then you had to present. And that was your interview. And I, it was something about next generation sales analytics. But when I was preparing for that, I, I really started to see a lot more need for collaboration between sales and marketing at the time. And I saw customer success starting to emerge as a function. And my prediction in that presentation to the executives at Serious Decisions back in 2015 was that there was going to be a consolidation of the operations functions because there was such a need to collaborate and become closer and eliminate these silos. And there were also some redundancies and things like analytics. So my presentation was 
really the thesis, I thought, for revenue operations. I called it commercial operations at that time. So I, I still define it as the as the combining of operations resources across the go-to-customer functions from marketing to sales to customer success. And now I depend that to say bringing in better relationships between HR and legal and the support organizations, especially finance. So the intent is to eliminate the silos that have existed between those functions to drive better processes to reduce all the friction that's occurred there and to provide a singular view from lead all the way through renewal of a customer so that you can make better decisions as executives and really leverage that information to perform better in the market. Yeah, that's really interesting that you have that perspective. I agree with you completely. Uh, one of the things we often hear is a difficulty for leaders to to stay strategic in the conversations because they're always asked to be doing things, right? And it's really easy to always get caught in the doer function. So you know, how would you define strategy and planning excellence in the context of RevOps? And how do you stay strategic as part of the planning process and not get caught up into the weeds? Well, revenue operations has now become the fastest growing job title, or or I can't remember how they describe it on LinkedIn, but it's the fastest growing profession that's out there, according to LinkedIn. I think that what's going to happen next is that we've really focused on execution through revenue operations in the last few years. And now planning is incredibly important because if you don't plan correctly, you're setting yourself up for failure for the next year. And when I led revenue operations at a company recently, the first person that I appointed was a head of, I called it strategy planning and rewards. And I think that there has to be an expectation that the sales plan is going to be executed and delineated throughout the entire organization with the same level of due diligence that was put into setting the plan for the CRO of the company. That means that we owe every single sales manager, every VP within the sales organization, every individual contributor, a higher degree of accuracy in how we're setting their quotas to give them a higher chance of success. And I I just was talking to somebody from the Sales Management Association. He brought an interesting stat to me where 60% of companies just state that they guess at the numbers when they're setting sales plans and territories and quotas. So to me, it's, it's exercising the same level of due diligence at every single level, which requires better tools, better processes, better people to be to be able to do that and to deliver them at sales kickoff so that everybody leaves there motivated and that it's done accurately so that you don't have to go back and redo all those territories and quotas. So I'd say a, a 5% deficiency rate on that. And then having the ability to modify those plans as you go throughout the year based upon changes in the market or the circumstances of the company. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I can't tell you how many times I've been part of a sales organization where our sales kickoff is not until like a month or two after the fiscal year closes and we're all waiting on our territories and our comp plans. And there's no reason why we have to wait that long. If we really want to have alignment across with everyone, we need to get that ready to go from day one. Would you agree with that? Yeah, when that occurs, when there's delays, compensation becomes a distraction to the sales force. And we'd all like to pretend that it doesn't exist, but a smart salesperson is not going to spend a lot of time developing pipeline and accounts and opportunities for accounts that they're not certain are going to be theirs when they go forward. It's just the way it works. And they'll either slow roll it or they won't work on it at all. And they need a level of assurance and a guarantee that they're going to be paid for the fruits of their efforts. I talked to a big Silicon Valley, let's just say network service provider a couple of months ago, and they've actually tracked it. And they see a high correlation between those individuals that receive their compensation plans on time and the performance for the year. They perform 20% better than those that get delays. 
happened. And we all suspect that occurs, but these, this company actually took the time to document it and they know how important it is. Has that been published? I'd love to see that. No, I keep asking them for it, but it's like their own secret that they like. Everybody would know that company. So we talked a little bit about this, so, so it might be a little bit repetitive, but, but when you think about like standards in terms of setting strategy and, and when it comes to strategy and, and, and uh, the question is really why? Why do we need to set that, raise the standards for RevOps? I'm sort of like a self-improvement enthusiast. I'm, I'm always looking for a way to help make myself better at what I do. And I was listening to a podcast a couple of years ago, and I think that they said that the human brain doesn't really understand the difference between, well, it can't determine what better looks like, but it knows what best looks like. So if you say that you want to get better at planning next year, that's a little bit of a nebulous goal. What does better look like? You have to put a definition to it. So you can say that I want to be the best at planning next year and your brain automatically starts to calculate what being the best would look like. And, and I think that we as sales operations or revenue operations professionals have not done a very good job of determining what best is. So I, I put something out on LinkedIn and, and gave some suggestions to people as what I thought the best would look like for sales planning. And one of the major components of it was timeliness. So it's ensuring that you deliver your compensation plans to your salespeople at sales kickoff or before if your sales kickoff is delayed like three months like you described. You know, the, the second attribute would be to make sure that they're accurate. I did a study when I was at Serious Decisions and it actually was on behalf of Anaplan back then where we saw that 90% of territories, quotas and compensation plans had to be redone after they were distributed to the sales force. And the reason why that, that happened was because the executives wanted to hit the timeliness factor. They didn't want to be embarrassed going into sales kickoff that they weren't delivering territories and quotas. So they told the operations group to go out and do it, make it happen, even though they hadn't made decisions about final quotas and territories and go-to-market structures until the night before. It just gets rammed through that last second. So they deliver everything, but with poor quality. And I think we need to delineate responsibilities in the sales plan as well, because when a company fails to execute on its sales plan, when they fail to hit their number, typically the sales organization is the only organization that gets blamed. But there are a lot of dependencies in achieving that number. If you've got a product release that's supposed to happen in the second quarter and it didn't happen, well, that was baked into the number. And the person that ends up being held accountable for that is the CRO, not necessarily the chief product officer. So when you've got demand dependencies, you've got brand dependencies, you've got product dependencies, you've got service dependencies, renewals, that all needs to be baked into the plan and well-documented so you can go back to see whether or not you hit those larger targets or not. We talked about revenue operations, Randy. Uh, when you talk about the synergies that we're trying to build between sales and marketing and customer success, it needs to be a collaborative planning effort between sales, marketing, customer success. There's so many times when I've talked to CROs and CMOs where they're completely misaligned on the segmentation strategy. You've got marketing going after a set of ABM accounts that sales hasn't even determined to be strategic because they just didn't communicate with one another and that was never brought through. So I think the days of sales operations sitting in a room with a finance leader for, for sales and coming up with a plan, executing that plan and then throwing it over to marketing at the end of it and saying, you guys go make something of this. It can't happen that way anymore. Marketing needs to build their budget. How much of you do you think the conditions that we're seeing in SaaS over the past, say, 12 to 18 months and the market conditions are dictating that need to change? It's hard to say that we should have seen what was coming as a result of the pandemic? Because there were so many companies that were panicked when it first hit. They didn't know what was gonna to happen to their top line. And as it turns out, SaaS companies actually saw an acceleration in growth during that, especially if you had a solution 
that was fostering better collaboration. Like Zoom is a great example of that. They didn't see that coming. But then, you know, companies like Zoom just started hiring and hiring and hiring and every SaaS company did it because they thought that the party was going to rage forever. But if, if you go back and you study what was happening to the activity levels and to the pipeline and some of the leading indicators, there were some indications that the party was going to end and they didn't pay attention to those leading indicators and they didn't bake those into the plan. So I, I think what we're seeing is the repercussions of overhiring because people weren't paying attention to the leading indicators. And what I think is happening now is that the recovery is happening. It's happening slowly. We're starting to see an uptick in many different companies, but they're also not prepared to, to staff themselves back up. So it's like this binge and purge cycle that we're going through and we should stop that. We should do a much better job of predicting these types of things. Yeah. Absolutely. It's interesting. So in preparing to talk with you, I know that you're a big fan of Paul Rolkins, right? And and I was listening to one of his TED Talks where he talked about you know, the majority of people, when they hit a wall, they do one of two things. They do more of the same things or they do less of the same things. And very seldom, I think it was only like about 3% of those people actually do something different. And I think it's very indicative of where we are today with some of the playbooks and things that were working for us before aren't working now, yet we're doubling down and doing more of them, but we're not doing the different things that we need to do. And so with the theme of Paul Rolkins, I'd like to ask you, we think of some of his work and thoughts around achieving greatness and how it relates to our topic or discussion today. So I've gotten to know Paul, you know, fairly well over the last five years. L like you, I watched his TED Talk. There's millions of views of it on YouTube. I, I think it's called Why the Majority is Always Wrong. And he's one of those guys, after I watched that, I reached out to, to him and LinkedIn and told him I really enjoyed it. And I'd like to talk to him. And he responded. And he's famous, you know. I thought, well, that's pretty humble of him. And I had a conversation with him. And I've had multiple conversations with him. I've been on, on uh, a podcast with him. A couple of things that he said to me have really stuck quite well. One of them, I was asking him, how do you motivate an executive team to come together to align on a common objective? And one of his tactics was to, to sit them in a room and to have them imagine that it's 12 months from now and that the company has failed in, in achieving its, its, object, its objectives. Like the we were supposed to grow 25%, we shrunk 8%. And then go around the room and ask them what contributed to that failure. So I thought that was kind of brilliant because it was a non-threatening way for people to raise concerns that they had about achieving that objective in the first place and bringing it to the attention of everybody saying, look, if we do this, this could go horribly wrong. And I think this is the thing that's going to lead to our failure. And executives, you know, I mean, even mid-level, everybody, we're all afraid to say the wrong thing. I think nobody wants to bring forth the truth sometimes because they're afraid of the repercussions of being that person. That was a great way to really bring people to a point of honesty. And then the second one is just the clearness of vision. If you're leading an organization and he's got this four block grid where he talks about having a vision. If you think about a, a Y axis, having a vision at the top and having no vision at the bottom. And then on the left-hand side, on the x-axis, having a no connection to that vision or a connection to the vision. So mistake number one, you don't have a vision. Mistake number two, you have a vision, but nobody's bought into it. So when you have an organization that has a vision and you've taken the time to have conversations with the rest of the leadership team, with the rest of the organization, and you try to ensure that everyone understands it and where they didn't understand it, you gave them clarification or you give them input, 
now they're bought into it. So they know what it is that they're trying to achieve. And I, I just thought that was brilliant. I agree. One of the things you're talking about, I think, is the need for uh, change management expertise in the RevOps function, right? Is So when think about a successful RevOps leader, how much of it should be prior experience in, say, sales ops or marketing versus, you know, more of like a change management background? I, I think that the people leading revenue operations today, most of them have come from a sales operations background. Because if we're, if we're being honest, the revenue operations responsibilities tend to gravitate towards sales operations, especially around planning and compensation design and forecasting and sort of the technical aspects of managing a sales process. But there's a giant gap in revenue operations because me included, we don't have that background and understanding of marketing operations and the complexity of that. And it's really a complicated tech stack. And there's a big difference between demand and brand responsibilities and I would like to see more marketing operations people start to cross-pollinate into a sales operations capability so that they can be the leaders of the revenue operations function coming up now. What about customer success operations? What role do you think they should have in, in this new RevOps function? So sales operations, let's say they, they were kind of the, the pioneers in this space. When I got into this back in the early 2000s, it was largely a sales finance responsibility in the finance organization. And then we found that the scales were tipped too much in favor of the finance organization. So sales operations hired their own MBAs to come in and be the business managers of the group. And you had CRM that was really becoming prevalent and, and other technology. So you needed somebody to, get, to give you the ability to do that. And then marketing automation came up. And that's where marketing operations came from. And customer success, we've had Gainsight for a few years now. And Gainsight is to customer success operations, what Siebel and Salesforce was to sales ops and what uh, Eloqua and Marketo were to marketing operations. So it's an important function and it's an emerging function. I think it's still defining itself. Yeah, we're at beginning stages. Absolutely. What role would you say data and analytics play in achieving this vision for better strategy when it comes to revenue operations? Well, I mean, it's better to know what's happening than to not know what's happening, right? And, and I, I think where most companies are today is that they, they've got a list of descriptive statistics that they use to read the tea leaves and try to figure out what's happening. And as things have evolved, there's been some really incredible vendors that have focused on the revenue intelligence space, and they're providing opportunity scores and account scores and pipeline forecast. It became predictive, right? So you had descriptive statistics, and then you had predictive analytics that were starting to use that information and tell you what it means. Uh, and then from there, it emerged into pr prescriptive statistics to tell you, this is what this means. This is what's going to happen if you continue down this path. Here's how you can change your course of action. And then the highest level is when you start to talk about artificial intelligence. And this is a model developed by the chief AI scientist for a company called Pros, a CPQ company, Dr. Michael Wu. He said the evolution of these analytics is descriptive, predictive, prescriptive. And then he talks about artificial intelligence where the prescriptive intelligence has told you what to do so many times that you would trust the advice it's giving you. You no longer have to go back to it to have it tell you what to do. It just does it for you. So for instance, moving one opportunity from one sales stage to a next, do you really need to prompt the salesperson to do that? Or can all this intelligence just move it for you based upon that? So it's, it's going from using ways to help you drive. It tells you to turn left and turn right to using a self-driving car. 
And, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity in revenue operations to take advantage of AI to make decisions for salespeople that are repetitive and that you trust the model so much that it, it reduces the amount of administrative burden that you have on your back. And it helps you focus on some of that more strategic work that you do. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think you know, we're hearing you can't turn to a poster or a page on news where everybody's talking about their AI solution right now, right? And so I think the promise for AI is is tremendous. But look, any good AI model is based on data and you've got to have good data to, to, to base that off of. And so I think there's a lot of companies who are hyping the AI, AI potential, but they don't have the good databases to be able to provide that. But I think what you're talking about is ultimately when you've got the good data, you're able to provide that type of automation that we've come to expect. My big fear now, Randy, is that we're going too far on all this intelligence gathering and monitoring and observing of salespeople. They're the most observed profession I think we've ever seen in B2B, where every activity, every conversation, every email, every person that they speak to is being monitored and tracked. We're, we're at the risk of turning this into a tyrannical career where you're micromanaging people and nobody likes to work that way. So I wonder how we're going to figure out how to find that balance between providing them with intelligence versus micromanaging them. And the bad managers are the ones that use it as a stick rather than as, a, as an incentive and a tool. Yeah. I think, look, your top reps in any company are going to get it done. They've gotten it done before the data was available. They're going to get it done now. It's how they're going to look at the data to help them either save time or close a deal faster. Good reps are always going to be your good reps. Your underperforming reps are going to be underperforming no matter how good the data is. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I I do. What I've observed just in in general performance anyway, whether it comes to sales or whether it comes to athleticism, whether it comes to business or family, whatever your endeavor might be, the people who are most persistent are the ones that are most successful. The ones that fail, that refuse to quit. They're the ones that just keep going after it. Like you can't stop them. Those are the most successful people. And then they develop intelligence with that. So they're not making the same mistakes repeatedly and they're just getting better and better and better. Yeah. They're going hit that wall. They're not just doing more of the same. They're finding different ways to get around that wall. Yeah, they're not afraid of failure either. They'll go out there and try something. If it doesn't work, then they're going to get back up and try something different. Yeah, absolutely. So getting back to the the strategy piece, which is where we started this conversation, are there any real-world examples, if you look across the body of work of the clients that you have at Anaplan right now, in terms of those that are implementing strategy and planning right, maybe give our audience some examples if you would. There's companies, I don't use their names because I'm not sure that they want me talking about them, but it's another one. It's a tool that we use every single day to gather intelligence about, let's say, our prospects, our accounts, our friends. It's how we stay in touch. I log into it a thousand times a day, but they're using Anaplan to modify their go-to-market strategy, their compensation plans, and their quotas and territories twice a year. Because the market changes so dynamically on them and their results are so market-driven that they have to have the ability to go back in and revisit these decisions at least twice a year because They need to give their salespeople the best opportunity to succeed, and they can't do that if they're making a static set of assumptions that never change throughout the year. You know, another company, a telecommunications company or a communications company, they're doing it four times a year because of the market dynamics and because of how quickly things can change for them. So the the most successful companies that I'm working with now are the ones that have instituted dynamic sales planning. They give them the ability to make these modifications throughout the year without completely disrupting their sales force. And in order to do that, I mean, just, just you remember I said the best in class companies are delivering their compensation plans, territories and quotas at sales kickoff. Imagine you got to do that four times a year now 
And you can't delay two or three months when you're trying to get these things done. You got to have it the day that they need to start performing. It's almost as if when you launch, the, then you're automatically working on the next one right away. Absolutely. Yeah. So they're observing what's happening now. They're taking those observations and they're reformulating their ideas and then they're instituting them into a revised plan going into the next quarter. We have to move much faster with a higher degree of accuracy. Mm-hmm. And what percentage of organizations would you say are doing that today? And how far off are we from getting more adoption of that type of sort of dynamic planning right now? I saw the the Sales Management Association report that I was reviewing today. 74% of the companies rate themselves at poor planning. They say that they're poor at planning. (laughs) 74%. Yeah. And like 80% of them think that they should all be better at planning. So I started to, to just develop this idea a couple of years ago is that Poor planning is a migraine that we've all just learned how to live with. Like, well, I get migraines. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't cure it. And that's not true. You can cure it. You have to decide what best looks like for you, and then you have to start to pursue that. What prevents organizations from being able to do better planning? What's the reason why more aren't doing it? I don't think that they thought that it was a problem that they could solve, even though intuitively they know it's a problem worth solving. Uh They've been institutionalized within their own institutions, right? They just don't think they can do it. That's right. Yeah. They don't realize that someone's taking the lid off the jar and that they can fly out. And it's up to us to help educate them and to help to raise the standards. We're going to transition the call to a little bit more of what I would call the lightning round, which is just some quick questions for you that don't have to do so much with RevOps, but more you personally. So what's the one book that you've read in the recent past? I started reading Robert Greene about a year ago, and I've read three of his books now. He's the guy that wrote The 48 Laws of Power, The Artist's Seduction, which is really a sales book and 33 Strategies of War. And of the three books, the one that I enjoyed all of them, I loved all of them, but the 33 Strategies of War, I think was the most insightful for me because it's really, call it 33 Strategies of Sales. Call it 33 Strategies of Managing Your Own Life, 33 Strategies of Just Interacting with the World. It's, it's almost as if it's a secret code that was delivered to people and it shouldn't have been because the messages are that powerful. Should be standard reading for everybody probably in high school to read, I would imagine. I don't know that they would get it. I think you got to be 55 and I've had <laughs> and have been beaten up enough times <laughs> to know, to really appreciate it. <laughs> Drew, what's your favorite part about working in RevOps? I have a military background, so I started my career as an Army officer. And I see a lot of parallels between go-to-market strategy, sales strategy and planning, sales execution and military strategy and military planning. It's probably why I I find 33 strategies of war so compelling. There's a huge strategic element to that. And there's major problems that you get an opportunity to work on. There are people problems, process problems, technology problems, market problems. You have to kind of figure out how to best deploy these resources in order to achieve the objective. So it's a hugely strategic role. So you enjoy strategy? I love strategy. Yeah, I think about it constantly, and even more so now than ever. So what would you say is the least favorite part about working in revenue operations, or, or ask a different way, what's hard about revenue operations? I think you mentioned it is that it's making the same mistake repetitively and never, ever ending it. When you join a sales organization and they've not achieved their objectives and they've replaced the CRO with the new CRO, the CRO comes in and they change what they call the go-to-market strategy. They say, we're going to go, we're going to do a vertical strategy next year. or We're going to do a hunter-farmer strategy next year. That's not really a strategy. It's, it's more of a tactic. And they vacillate between these different go-to-market strategies repetitively. 
So the, the, the new leader is going to go in and do exactly what the opposite of what the last person did. And what that person did was the opposite of the last person. So they're now back to the one that got displaced the last time. You know, it's ridiculous. We just keep changing things around. And it's so incredibly disruptive to a sales organization to have that happen to them every single year. They never get their footing. Especially when you look at sales cycles that are 12 months plus, it's like we're just starting to get our footing underneath us and we're changing the strategy and you're ripping up territories and everything else. Yeah, you're dislodging people from accounts, from opportunities, from all the attraction that they had. That's the most frustrating part for me is knowing simple truths that aren't so simple. And there's probably a political element to it. What's some advice that you've received from someone that has stayed with you and you like to share with the audience? I studied martial arts for 18 years. I studied Kung Fu and I learned with a Kung Fu master and the, the, the amount of power that the people that I worked with were able to produce was incredible. Like if they were hitting something, it, it would take the target right out of your hand and go flying across the room. So I was really focused on the outcome. Like, how do I do that? How do I produce that much power? And in order to do it, you had to relax. He, he called it focus on the draw. So it was really more about the preparation than it was about the execution. You had to be able to execute, but it was three to one preparation to execution. And I believe that to be the case now is you suspend 300% more time preparing than you should execute, executing. And you shouldn't get yourself involved in analysis paralysis, but think about what it is that you're trying to do and how you should prepare yourself for it. And by the time you get to the objective, then you'll be a lot better prepared. So focus on the draw. Focus on the draw. Last one for you, Dana. What's the one piece of advice for people that are maybe up and coming in their careers and they want to have your job someday? Learn how to write. Be a great writer. Because he or she who writes clearly thinks clearly. And I spent a lot of the time communicating with people. And in college, in my undergrad, I had an undergrad degree in accounting, but I gravitated towards the writing aspect of it. I developed a really special bond with my writing teacher. And I, I focused on that and I, I got pretty good at it. And I've always enjoyed writing both personally and professionally. And I've got a professional editor that I've worked with for 25 years where anytime I write anything, I send it over to her and she edits it for me. She coaches me on how to be a better writer and I'm still doing it after 25 years. So it's been tremendously beneficial to me. It's made me a better communicator. What's the one tactic or the one piece of advice specifically to writing that you would give? Try to write like you speak. I'm guilty of this. When I start to think about writing something, for some reason, this little button clicks off in your head where you have to try to you try to sound more intelligent, I guess, than you are. And you use words that you typically wouldn't use if you were speaking to somebody. Uh, be clear, be concise, be brief, be direct. That's what people really appreciate. With that, Dana, I think that's excellent advice. That's a wrap for this episode of the Revenue Lounge. Dana, thanks again for joining. I had a great conversation and look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. See ya. All right, take care.